Uh, yeah, so come join us to build stuff. Uh, I think me and Topher, we, we already kind of got an idea on the wall. Don't, don't, don't look at that whiteboard over there. That's, that's our idea. Don't, don't steal it. Don't steal. But uh, yeah, it should be fun. Do you have to register a car? Yeah, so if you click that top link, if you RCP, we'll save your spot. If you don't, then you'll be outside. You'll be out in the cold. Well, you'll be on the patio. We'll have a grill, too. Hey, what are the prizes? Oh, yeah, so two things at the bottom. Surprises on this website? On the, the main website. The oh, main yeah. Website. Prizes. Oh, man, we've got the most polished. Oh, best, best hack overall. 20 million sats, most polished. 5 million, most ambitious 5 million, ooh, a Chamein Mint, 5 million, privacy 5 million, and we won't even talk about the last one. That's, uh, that should go into, that should just go into like privacy. 10, 10 million for privacy, edit. All right. I'll get started, the main programming. All right, so those of you who don't know me, I'm Nick Tiley. Uh, software engineer at a company called Galoi. We're a uh, startup in the Bitcoin space. Um, so we make Bitcoin banking software, and it's all open source. Um, so kind of the motto right here is we're decentralizing the banking system one organization at a time. Um, so kind of what I'm going to talk about today is kind of the Bitcoin Beach Wallet and the Galoi stack, you know, what we have to offer, and like why would you actually use it. Um, but most of this talk will be in code, hacking stuff together, probably demos that won't work. Maybe it will work. Um, but it's going to be probably not technical at the beginning, but at the end it'll get very technical, just to warn everyone. Um, so I guess kind of my story of how I started kind of here in Austin with Pleb Lab. Um, I, I think I kind of showed up about six to seven month, months ago. Um, but really, I met at Meteor, one of our coffee shops. I met our founder, uh, Nicholas Bertie here. Um, and he was talking about the Galois stack. And I, I kind of heard about Galois. I'm like, were they the guys who made the Bitcoin Beach Wallet in El Salvador? Um, but anyways, I basically just talked to him. I pulled the code down from GitHub. I got it up and running on my machine within you know, 30 minutes. Um, we went to Capital Factory at the time. Pleb Lab was out there. Um, so we, I just kind of hacked all day on the stack and just kind of got obsessed with it. Um, and we were kind of joking around, we should make a, a pleb bank. Uh, so that's kind of where this little meme came from, like pleb bank of Austin, you know, come take it, is our motto. But uh, it's not a real bank, but it was just a cool idea that we had um, that was made possible by building on top of the Galois um, open source stack. Um, um, so let's talk a little bit about Galois and the Bitcoin Beach Wallet. Um, so if you're not familiar with the Bitcoin Beach Wallet, um, there's a town in El Salvador called El Zante, um, and they got gifted a bunch of anonymous money from some rich Bitcoiner, um, and they needed a lightning wallet. Um, so basically at the time, our founder, Nicholas, flew down there, um, and he said, hey, I'll build you a lightning wallet for free. Uh, we'll build it on top of this software I've been working for on the last couple of years um, on Galoi. Um, so if you haven't been down, has anyone been to El Zante or El Salvador? Raise your hands, anybody? One? Wow, okay, you guys, okay. These next slides will be cool then. Um, yeah, so if you don't know the whole story is they're kind of left out of the banking system down there. It's too expensive for somebody who lives in a rural village in El Salvador to get like a traditional bank account. Um, so they were very heavy on cash. I'm sure a lot of you know like the Jack Mahler story. Um, you know, he was part of some of the stuff in El Salvador, you know, as well as Galois before, you know, they adopted Bitcoin as legal tender. Um, 
So yeah, 2009 is when Mike Peterson went down there, kind of started the youth programs and the computer classes. Um, and then in 2019, there was that anonymous Bitcoin donation. Um, and then 2020, Nicholas came down there and made the Bitcoin Beach Wallet. Um, I think a little bit after Jack Mollers was down there doing that stuff, which obviously Bitcoin Conference 2021, I think, is when they made the big, the big huge announcement about legal tender. Um, yeah, so here's just, I, I went there recently for the Adopting Bitcoin Conference that Galois throws every year, usually in the month of November. Uh, but you can see it's a beautiful beach. Like on the, the right there, I took that picture at sunset and some, I don't know who that was, but somebody was flying in on a, uh, a helicopter. I think it was somebody from Cash App. They were doing like a surf competition that weekend. Um, so it was cool to yeah, kind of see that, snap that randomly. Um, and then on the right is just me in front of the, the El Zante sign with obviously the Bitcoin in the background. Yeah, so there's volcanoes in El Salvador too. So if you want to do some sightseeing, you go hit some sunsets of volcanoes. Um, and this is just a shill for our um, conference we do every year, Adopting Bitcoin. Um, so it's a little bit different than some of the tech conferences in Bitcoin Miami. Um, it, it's kind of half technical and just half about the actual people adopting Bitcoin, like for their day-to-day -day life and circular economy and just kind of how it helps them. Um, so yeah, there's, there's Dusty actually giving a talk on uh, splicing. He's a, he's a local guy here. Um, so this is actually our wallet. So we don't actually have our wallet on the App Store here in the US just because it's hard to make that happen legally with a custodial wallet. Um, but it's available you know, pretty much everywhere else. Um, you know, it's a standard Lightning wallet with on-chain Bitcoin. Um, you can basically, there's a map. Uh, yeah, you got a question? I think they're, uh, they're riding dirty. Yeah, I think uh, they're just flying on the radar right now. So I think, yeah, I wouldn't. They said Australia, right? Yeah, the Wall of, we actually had the conversation at our company a couple of days ago on this. But yeah, they're, they're based out of Australia and I don't know why. Like, I think they're just flying under the radar for now. So I would, yeah, I'd watch out for that one. Um, but anyways, uh, a lot of the early stuff with our wallet is, you know, we were actually making it for people in El Salvador who didn't know anything about Bitcoin, um, especially Lightning, you know, when you have like two invoices. So we wanted to do like this earn sats to learn. Um, so you, they can actually earn, I think their first hundred sats or something, um, actually learning what Bitcoin is, how to use the wallet, why is this on chain, why is this Lightning, um, just a really basic introduction to that. Um, so this is a super high level overview. I wouldn't even call it an architecture, just an over, overview of our core Bitcoin banking platform. Um, so we have, like I showed earlier, a mobile wallet. We also have a web wallet and kind of an admin dashboard. Um, you know, sometimes in Lightning, um, when a merchant uses it, they might get charged too high of a fee where we have to refund them, just you know, blips in the network and stuff like that. Uh, we have an admin panel. Um, we have our backend GraphQL API. Um, we have basically multi-sig because we are kind of running a custodial wallet. You don't want to have all your funds on chain in a hot wallet. You want to have uh, multi-sig cold storage custody for that. So we have solutions for that. Um, we have this thing called a synthetic dollar, which kind of got renamed to stable sats. If you're familiar with that 
feature we launched last year, but it basically gives people access to the dollar who don't have access to it. You know, we're lucky enough we don't need that feature because we have access to banks if we need if we need fiat, which you know Bitcoin's better, but sometimes you need your monthly expense with fiat. Um, and our last thing we have is just instrumentation. Um, we have monitoring, we have telemetry, tracing, you know, all the stuff you need to run like a real production grade enterprise application with, you know, thousands of users you start running into just having to operate your operations and it has to be pretty slick. Um, so just a really quick slide on the StableSats feature. This allows people in El Salvador to convert between Bitcoin and stable dollars. It's, it's not a stable coin, it's totally different. Um, serves the same purpose, but um, you know, a stable coin people are typically used to is Tether. It's issued by you know, Bitfinex, um, but it, it's centralized in the sense where you know, even though it's running on whatever blockchain they use or Bitcoin or I don't know what they're using nowadays, you're still, the risk is in one party. Um, so we're trying to split that risk up. So I'm not going to go into super big detail because there's a lot of talk about how this stable set thing works. Um, but essentially, the goal is you put the, the, the trust. And anytime you have a stable coin type thing, you have to trust some entity. Um, so the entity we trust is an exchange. Um, so we can actually split that up between many exchanges. Obviously, you have bad exchanges like FTX. Um, but there's a lot of other ones. So right now, it's, it's based on the OKX exchange. And it's essentially just a hedge on both sides of a trade with Bitcoin. You long and short it, and it essentially can stay stable over time um, to give people who don't have access to the dollar, like Venezuelans probably need it pretty bad. And obviously, countries who are doing hyperinflation, this is kind of a useful feature for those people. Um, so uh, like I said, our stack is totally open source. Anybody can download it. They get all those features I was talking about earlier for free. Um, and there's several other projects that are using it. I talked about kind of the first project was Bitcoin Beach that used it. Um, there's, you know, Bitcoin Jungle is another one who forked it down in Costa Rica. You've got the Brazilians with Praia Bitcoin. Um, you've got Senegal and uh, Bitcoin Lake down in Guatemala. Um, so there's definitely a lot of implementations. I think I just heard of a Bitcoin mountain somewhere. I don't know exactly where, but you know, just throw the word Bitcoin in front of anything and you can run it. Um, so obviously a lot of us here are pretty technical, so we probably run our own LND node. We probably run our own LNBits, you know, most likely on Umbrella, I think is the typical setup for somebody. Um, so I'm going to kind of differentiate the difference between that, um, between like a voltage or open node solution, which is in a different class, and then Galois is kind of in its own separate class. Um, so typically when you run your own Umbrella node, it's on one single box, usually a Raspberry Pi. Um, so that allows, not for like super big scalability, you, you kind of get into vertical versus horizontal scaling. Um, so at that point, you can just vertically scale. You can add more CPU or RAM to your one machine. Eventually, once you max that machine out, you're kind of done, um, which is fine for an Umbrella or LM bits because you're just hosting that for yourself or maybe like the Uncle Jim model where you're hosting it for, you know, 100 friends or 20 friends, however. Um, and that'll, that'll work pretty good. But once you get to a bigger scale, you'll probably move to something like a Voltage where they're actually running that in a cloud somewhere, they're kind of running the infrastructure for you. You don't have to manage or think about it. I know Topher's used it for some of his projects out there. Sats for Tip, I believe, is one that's running on Voltage with Ellen Bits. And that um, will scale a little bit more, right? So you could probably get tens of thousands of users with that scale. Um, but once you start getting bigger, you might have to move to like an open node. 
which is what they, a lot of companies in El Salvador use, like when you know, McDonald's and Starbucks had to adopt Lightning as part of the, the Bitcoin law down there. Um, they, most of them just went with OpenNode, which is a fully custodial node they manage for you. Um, the code is closed source and you don't really know what's going on. Um, but that scale is obviously pretty good. They've got McDonald's and Starbucks on it. Um, and we're kind of like on the far end of like horizontal scaling. So we use a technology called Kubernetes, which I'm going to do a lot of demos of that later. Um, but that allows you to add just more instances. Um, so, so assume this is running in like a Google Cloud or an AWS Cloud. Um, you know, we can scale to you know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of users um, with our architecture. Um, and this is similar to like what a Cash App has to do. Cash App, you know, they're going to have hundreds of thousands of users maybe. I don't know how many users are lightning. Probably tens of thousands right now. Um, but they, that's a lot of the, the drivers behind them rewriting some of the, the, the Bitcoin and lightning software. They wrote BDK, the Bitcoin development kit, to allow these more horizontal scaling use cases. Um, you know, same with LDK. You know, LND and some of these other implementations are a little more on the vertical scaling. You can kind of do like a load balancing, like a round robin situation with multiple LND nodes to get it to scale pretty big. Um, but once you're on the size of Cash App, you're probably going to want something like an LDK out there. Um, so yeah, that's just kind of the difference between um, the different architectures. Um, so this is a super detailed view of like everything our stack offers. And again, this is everything's open source. Um, you know, it runs in the cloud, but it also runs on machines too. I'm actually going to do a demo of it running on this Intel NUC I have right here, if you can see that, um, which isn't a super beefy machine. It's, it's a bit beefier than a um, Raspberry Pi. I believe this has like eight gigs of memory, maybe 16, maybe like an i8 processor. It's like a $500 machine. So it can run probably on most of your laptops. Um, um, but yeah, let me kind of go through all of our features um, real quick, kind of starting at the core here. Um, so we run a uh, multi-sig custody, like I was talking about with uh, Spectre. Um, we've got a Bitcoin D full node. Um, and we've got two LND nodes, because we don't want to have any downtime. So I'm sure a lot of you who run a Lightning node know about having to upgrade that, especially when we get these you know, hot patches we got to do and like really quick, because Barack puts a, a big transaction. We're still, you know, we're still early days, so you got to patch your node. Um, so we have uh, two nodes for redundancy for that. Um, if you go up a layer, we've got kind of our core products. Um, we've got the stable sets thing I was talking about with the you know, kind of the stable dollar situation. Um, we've got a lightning gateway, which we have a GraphQL API on top of L&D, so it makes it a little bit easier to write applications with. Um, and we've also got a core ledger, an accounting system. Um, so similar to like LN Bits has an accounting system where you can do like an Uncle Jim for your family. We have an accounting system for all of our users. You know, what are their balances? How much Lightning do they have? How much Bitcoin do they have? Um, and that's all exposed to all the applications with this GraphQL layer. Um, and we're starting to even get more of a different authentication layer. Um, so we do want to support all different ways to authenticate with our app. Right now, we're pretty much a, a phone number and a Twilio code is like the easiest way in El Salvador they wanted to authenticate. Uh, but in the future, we want to support, you know, Password list auth where you just open the app like Wallet Satoshi you just open the app and you're in. But there's actually like tokens and fancy authentication stuff going on over the under the covers to identify you. But it looks like you just open the app and you're using it. 
Um, so I think we do st start to want to get into those more um, complicated setups for authentication just so we can have different uh, products. Um, and really in the future, if some big enterprise or bank wanted to adopt our software, they might have some kind of authentication enterprise system that they want to tap into. Um, other than that, we've got a pretty advanced uh, CICD pipeline. Um, we run our own CICD. We, you know, a lot of people run like GitHub Actions to do continuous integration delivery. Um, we actually use a tool called Concourse. It's open source. We run all of our own CI ourselves. Um, it's a little bit safer to store secrets and keys out there. And if you run your own CI, I believe Circle CI just had a, uh, a hack a few, I think about a month ago, where everyone had to rotate their secrets and keys. So you don't you don't want to store secrets on somebody else's uh, CI system. Uh, what else do we got? And we've got some of these continuous infra infrastructure tools. Um, like I was saying earlier, we run everything on Kubernetes. Um, and this is kind of an interesting evolution of kind of the previous workshops. And you know, we started kind of with Austin with some of the plebdeb stuff where he showed us you know, React Native code. And I believe you pulled down Ellen Bits locally. And then you kind of evolved to what Topher showed us with Docker. You know, we're running all this stuff in Docker containers and images on one machine. Um, Kubernetes is kind of evolution of that. You know, how do you run all these dependencies like LND and Bitcoin and all this stuff? How do you run it at scale for you know, thousands of users, potentially in a cloud or maybe on your own server, or your own machine? Um, and that's really, really where Kubernetes comes in handy. Um, and on top of all this stuff, we have, like I said, mobile application, a web app, um, all that type of stuff. And you could even write your own custom Bitcoin app if you wanted to. Um, so let's go into the demo. No more slides. I'll code from here on out. Or actually, yeah, I actually have one more slide. So the, the origin story of Galois. So not a lot of people know this, but uh, the name is actually from a tribe, um, the Gauls. So back in like 5th fifth, fifth century BC, um, there was this Celtic tribe. They were like these decentralized people scattered around like this big, huge centralized Roman Empire. Um, and they were able to withstand you know, many centuries of not getting occupied by uh, the Romans. Um, so it's an interesting story that they're, you know, where's the good line here? Um, so so they're, they're basically like the ancient Bitcoiners, right? They were self-sovereign, all about freedom, but they somehow were able to coordinate together and you know, fight off the Roman empires for many centuries. So that's, that's kind of the, the, the story behind the Galois name. Very, very similar to us, the Bitcoiner ethos. All right, let's get into code. Um, so this is actually, I'm remoting into this box right here. I'm running Ubuntu on there. So let me get in here. Yeah, I switched to light mode. I'm usually not a light mode guy. I'm a, I'm a dark mode guy. So this just makes it look a little bit better for the, for the screens out there. What do you use for the remote desktop? I use um, a combination of VNC and um, Tailscale. Yep. So yeah, I can basically remote into it through my Tailscale IP, like a 100 IP address. Um, and then I just VNC, and I just use remote desktop as my client on Mac. Um, so yeah. Sorry, jumping back. Yeah, we just take one down, update it, take the other one down, update it. It's kind of in succession. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, it was, I was on call that week, so it was like a Sunday night at like 7. I was following Ben the Carman on Twitter, and I was like tweeting at him. I'm like, dude, like, is this gonna, are we going to get all of our money stolen? What should I do? He's like, he's like oh, just, just wait for the update. So they, I believe Lalu pushed an update at like 9 p.m. on a Sunday, and we were able to get our node patched and everything out within an hour because, you know, really it's, it's one line of code I changed. I checked it into GitHub, and then our CI pipeline picked it all up and uh, deployed it out to Kubernetes. So it was fairly seamless with our stack to do these emergency patches. But anyways, uh, let's get into this. Um, so right now I'm just using VS Code. Um, and we actually have a repository out there called Charts. Um, so let me see. It's under GitHub. Our main Galoi repo is under Galoi Money. So if you want to see any of this code, we've got 65 repositories out there. Um, but the one in particular that I'm going to use, um, usually when you're developing locally, you're going to pull down the Galois repo, and that is our main GraphQL backend with all of our L&D and Bitcoin, and we use Docker Compose to do our development locally. Um, but I'm going to show you more of a production deployment of this. So that's actually in our charts repo. Um, it stands for Helm Charts. It's kind of like a package manager, kind of like NPM if you're a TypeScript developer, JavaScript. Um, this charts thing helps you create Kubernetes um, packages that you can deploy. Um, so this is the repository I'm working in today is the charts repo. Um, so let's jump into that. Um, so once you clone the code, you're going to want to install a couple dependencies. Um, and again, I'm not deploying this out to like a Google Cloud or AWS. I want to show that you can run it locally on your own machine. Um, so I actually have this Intel NUC running here. Um, and within this machine, you can basically run a virtual Kubernetes environment within Docker. Um, so if I do a Docker PS, you should see I don't have anything up and running in Docker yet, no containers. Um, so you just go to K3D is the, the tool that we use to virtualize it. That's just a download you can download. Um, the second dependency you need to download is this tool called Terraform. Um, and I wasn't familiar with Terraform until I started at Galois, but it's really it's a tool to help you deploy your code out to these clouds. Um, it's, it just kind of does diffs and chain sets and does all these advanced features where you basically can do like a rolling update and have no downtime because you're running on a cluster of computers and it just makes everything simple. And we'll go over that. It's, it's, it's a little complicated, but... Um, and the last tool you need to download is um, kubectl. I think a lot of people call it. I like to call it kubectl, but I think the official word is kubectl. It's kind of a goofy name. Um, but this is uh, the CLI tool for managing your Kubernetes cluster. Very similar to like a Docker CLI is the equivalent that you're probably used to. Um, so after you download those dependencies, um, we've actually got this dev folder. Um, and this dev folder means you can deploy it locally to like your own Kubernetes cluster. We have all the scripts and all the YAML files and all the Terraform files, all the, the nasty CICD stuff that developers don't usually want to deal with. Um, we've written all of that for you, and we're going to go a little bit into how that works. Um, yeah, so once you get in there, you can do a durmvallow. Um, durm is a cool tool. It just sets your environment variables for you, so you don't have to manually have a .m file. Um, just sets all that up. Um, so let's run that and make sure we've got all of our environment variables loaded up. Um, so we've got environment variables. And I'm going to go into more details on what the heck Kubernetes is and what we're doing in a second here when some of this stuff is deploying. 
Um, so the next thing we have this command called create cluster. Um, so this is actually going to create that Kubernetes cluster virtualized inside of Docker. Um, so let's, this, this is usually pretty quick, and I'll show you what it did um, in a second here. Um, so K3D is the tool that allows this. It's by a, a company called Rancher. They make a lot of open source software. Um, so now we successfully created a cluster. So if I do a Docker PS, you should see we have some stuff running. Um, so this is essentially our entire Kubernetes environment running on this machine. Um, and that's pretty powerful, because uh, typically you have to run this in a Google Cloud or AWS. This is kind of what runs the world. Like Twitter runs on a Kubernetes cluster. Um, well, pretty much every big company, I'm sure Facebook uses it. Um, it's just how you run these big at scale applications. Um, but I kind of wanted to, to jump over uh, to chat GPT, because I was trying to, to figure out how do you explain what Kubernetes is. So it kind of started with, uh, like, what is Kubernetes? Explain it to me like I'm five. And it was kind of juvenile, like, Kubernetes is like a boss of all the little helpers in your house. I'm like, all right, that's, that's stupid. All right, let's go, let's go a little older. How do I explain it to me like I'm 10? And this is a little bit better. So, so, like, so yeah, Kubernetes is like a giant computer playground <laughs> that helps you organize and run your games and applications. It can run many applications in this one thing. Um, just like how you have different games you like to play, there are different computer programs that people like to run. Kubernetes helps uh, make sure each of the program gets the right resources, like memory and processing power, so it can all run properly. Um, it also helps keeping track of all the different programs and make sure they work seamlessly, um, blah, 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 blah. And essentially, it's a high available um, um, clustered environment. So if you had an API, you're not going to install one instance of that API. You're going to install multiple instances. And if you have to update your code, Kubernetes handles taking one instance down, waiting, updating the code, taking the second instance down, so you never have downtime. So it's a highly available environment um, when you're running these production apps. All right. What's that? Um, yeah, I mean, for like our production application, we host on Google Cloud. So Google Cloud offers a Kubernetes offering. It's just a cluster of servers out there. Um, same thing with AWS. If Google Cloud goes down, yeah, we're screwed. <laughs> Runs half the internet, AWS. You could essentially load balance between an AWS and a Google Cloud if you're that popular enough. Um, but yeah, if Google Cloud goes down, yeah, your cluster's down. So we could redeploy to an AWS because we have all of our CI/CD pretty much automated. Uh, I mean, most companies have like a disaster recovery plan. All of our code is infrastructure as code, so we just run a couple commands and spin up a new cluster, and you're good. Yeah. So yeah, everything's automated. Uh, all of our configuration is automated. So yeah, we, we pretty much just run some commands and it deploys. Um, yeah, Ben? Uh, how does Kubernetes compare to like Docker Compose? Is it like same? Yeah, so, so the synergies between Docker and Kubernetes is you create a Docker file and you create basically your, um, your image, right? So you've got, we've got an image for the Galoi API, right? Just, like they have images for Postgres and Mongo and all your dependencies. Same exact thing. Instead of deploying it to a single instance on your computer like Docker, 
you deploy it to this cluster called Kubernetes. Um, so it's very similar in the sense in Docker, you typically use Docker Compose YAML file to set up all your dependencies and how everything works. Same thing with Kubernetes, you have a YAML file where you describe what version of Linux you want, you know, all your dependencies, all your environment variables and secrets, um, and then the Docker image that you want to deploy to this Kubernetes cluster thing. Yeah, yeah, Kubernetes is the infrastructure. Yeah, yeah. It's highly available load balance infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah, right here. It's running right next to me. Keeping my hands warm. Yeah, yeah, it's the same thing. It's the same infrastructure. So you can run Kubernetes on your own server. It's really a standard. It's, it's a standard. So the, the history, there's actually a good documentary on the history of Kubernetes. It was actually Google that created it because they were so behind the cloud race with AWS. AWS had like, I don't know, 90% market share back in like 2013. Microsoft had barely any of their, their cloud kind of sucked back then. But Google's like, how the heck are we going to catch up with uh, you know, AWS? Everyone's hosting on AWS. And they're like, oh, let's just create this open protocol, kind of like in Bitcoin, we have the Bitcoin protocol, Lightning protocol, you know, other protocols. They, they created this Kubernetes thing. It was, it's a protocol of how to run your application on a cloud, right? So you don't got to hit all these different APIs and do custom stuff for AWS. So, so really, this is infrastructure stuff. This is, this, this stuff. A lot of the stuff I'm talking about is not like developer type stuff. It's more like infrastructure guy stuff. Yeah, yeah. And then it became part of this cloud native foundation. I don't know if it's under Linux, but yeah, it's just it's this pro open protocol that everyone can take and run. So I, I run it on my machine. Google runs it in their cloud. AWS had to start running it in their cloud because their customers were demanding it. Azure cloud runs Kubernetes. So if you know how to write your infrastructure in Kubernetes, you can run it anywhere. doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah, we're going to run an entire deploy on, and it'll it is the same exact way to deploy Kubernetes on this single box as to deploy deploy to GCP or AWS. Same exact infrastructure as code. Terraform makes it, it easy to kind of the nuances between the clouds. Like each cloud has a different way to store secrets or environment variables. Um, so this Terraform tool helps you. Uh, navigate some of those nuances. What was it? I, I don't understand the question. What was it? Uh, it, it can be any size, right? So if you're a small application, it could be a single instance, like two gigabyte machine with one CPU in it. You know, if you're a huge company like Twitter, your 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 Kubernetes cluster is probably hundreds of ser hundreds of servers under underneath it, right? Um, yeah, so it can scale up and down, and you can do it dynamically as well. Um, yeah. All right, so let me get into to creating this. Um, so right now, there's this tool called K9s, um, and this shows my entire environment right now, right? 
Um, so if you're use, used to Docker Compose and using Docker Desktop, this is a similar view of like every application running within your cluster. Um, so right now we don't have much. We've got a DNS server um, and then a couple other things. So this is just core stuff to Kubernetes. Um, so, K9s, uh, it's just another download. You can just go to K9s and then, yeah, it's, it's just a, it's, it's portainer essentially in a command line view, um, if you're familiar with that tool. All right, so we created our cluster. What's the next thing we have to do? Um, so let's run make init and I'll show you guys what that does. Um, so let's go to our make file. If you're not familiar with make file, it's kind of like a package.json in like web development world. It's a way to run these scripts. Um, so make init is actually this Terraform thing. This helps me deploy code to the Kubernetes cluster. Um, and I'll show you what it actually did. Oops. Um, so all that did was format my code to get ready to deploy. And I'll show you an example of these configuration YAML files in a second here. I want to get, kick off some of these deployments because it takes a couple minutes to go through. Um, so the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to deploy my services. Um, so these are like your dependencies, like your databases, your you know, stuff that these applications depend on. So let's do make deploy services. Um, and this will really kick off a lot of things. So you'll see a lot of stuff start to kick off in my cluster here. Um, again, these are all the dependencies. Let me get rid of this to make it bigger. Um, so you see that deploy is starting to kick off my dependencies. So we depend on this tool called Kafka, which if you're familiar with uh, queues and PubSub type ar architectures, um, it's just an open source tool that helps you do that. Um, so let's see what else it's going to deploy. Um, so now we're deploying certificate managers. So if you've ever deployed an application, you usually have SSL certificates to secure your application. Um, typically within the cluster, because it is distributed, you usually have TLS certs for each of the applications running. So LND has a TLS cert that helps secure it. LND talks to Bitcoin D. Bitcoin D has a TLS cert. So we've got a certificate manager within here. Uh, the next thing that our, our dependencies deploy is, is this ingress. Um, so if you're familiar with deploying code, um, you typically have to have an ingress. This is your, your public IP. This is the public endpoint that everyone hits. And then it goes inside your Kubernetes cluster, which is private. That's firewalled off. You don't want anybody in your Kubernetes cluster. If somebody's in there, they're, they're a hacker trying to steal your stuff. Usually that's just for the system administrators. Um, so our ingress helps expose some of our ports. All right, what else are we installing? Yeah, essentially, yeah, we're we're using nginx as a reverse proxy in uh, in for our ingress, and I'll, I'll, we'll go we'll go into that in a second here. Um, another thing you need when you kind of deploy these real enterprise apps to production is um, some way to do tracing. Um, so that's almost like if you're a web developer, you probably have a bunch of console.logs. That's kind of how most people start, uh, but it's kind of like logging like on steroids, right? You you have an end-to-end -end view of your application from when somebody hits it. They do a couple of HTTP requests, they might get data back, and then maybe they get a bug, like three requests in. 
tracing gives you an end-to-end -end view of all of that stuff and it records all of it so you can go back and troubleshoot problems. Um, so, so we use a tool called Open Telemetry to do that. It's kind of an industry standard nowadays. Um, and I think that is probably all of our dependencies. Um, let's see. All right, so the next thing we're gonna do is make deploy. Um, and this, this is gonna deploy our entire stack, the Galois API, the web wallets, uh, ride the lightning, LND, Bitcoin, everything. So this one command, I'll go into the configuration files behind this, but this takes about five or 10 minutes to deploy. So let me, uh, let me kick that off. One second, Topher. Um, and then we show you everything's gonna light up here. Um, so right, so boom, we're getting Bitcoin deinstalled there. That's one of our dependencies. And once Bitcoin D gets installed, LND gets installed because LND depends on Bitcoin D. Once LND gets installed, our Galois API gets installed because that depends on LND. So you can kind of see this dependency tree um, starting to form here. And I'll show you a couple configuration files in a second. Uh, Topher, you had a question? Yeah, so uh, it seems like the two services are trying to support Linux. Uh, so when I run... Oh, I... Yeah, don't don't follow along, because it there's some there's some bugs within that uh, repo that I have like a custom thing I got to check in. So so yeah, you're gonna you're gonna run into bugs. You're gonna run into bugs. You're you're way you're way ahead of the game. But we'll we'll get it run on your machine later today if you're interested. But yeah, there's a few there's a few things that aren't configured um, because you have to we have to tweak the configuration a little bit for uh, for this K3D environment. Yeah, yeah, I'll show that in a second here. Um, yeah. Um, so you see we're getting LND up and running. We've got LND's Postgres server. Um, all right, so let's, let's, since that's all good and starting, it's going to take a couple more minutes. We can dig into some of the uh, configuration files. I'm trying to think of a good example of a file I could pull up. Uh, and I'm no expert at any of this stuff. This stuff was already set up before I came here. I just dabble in Kubernetes. I just thought it was an interesting topic just with the previous uh, workshops we had, just kind of an evolution of how, you know, when you write code, how does it get to like a production state? Um, yeah, so within our folder structure here, let me kind of go through that, um, the folder structure. Um, we basically have charts, CI, and dev. Um, dev is essentially where all the configuration lives for running it locally in like this local K3D environment. Um, everything under charts is kind of, the base configuration where you can use it to deploy to like a Google Cloud or an AWS. Uh, there's some customizations you have to do if you switch between the cloud uh, providers, but for the most part, um, this is all the base configuration. Um, so if I were to go into like, let's look at the configuration for like our Bitcoin setup. Um, we've got these um, YAML files here, which kind of is where you, you set everything. And if you're familiar with Docker Compose, this is the same theory. This is where you put all your configurations. Um, a lot of the stuff is dynamic. Um, so you can see for Bitcoin, uh, we're running our network as regtest because we're running this locally. You know, other values could be testnet or signet or mainnet. Um, we're running it on this RPC port, um, 18443. Um, if you wanted to run it on a different port, this is where you'd put that um, configuration. Um, and to show you like the dependency, 
Um, so I believe most of our dependencies are in these Terraform files. Um, so if I go to Bitcoin, um, and I'm not very well versed in Terraform. It's, it's made by this company called HashiCorp. Um, but their whole big thing is just dependency management and deployment, right? So if you change like the Bitcoin port, the RPC port from like 18443 to 18444, you would change that in here. And then Terraform would basically do like a diff. It would see, oh, you changed this one thing. If you want to redeploy your application, we don't have to install the whole thing, LND and this. We're just going to redeploy one thing in Bitcoin. And that it just handles the dependency with like one line of code. And we'll, I'll show you that. Um, later um, but let me see there should be a depends on um, so the depends on keyword is where you would get those dependencies so before this bitcoin thing can be deployed we have to deploy this thing called kubernetes secret so it needs to have a secret to deploy um, so the same thing would be if, if, it, if it depends on um, well bitcoin doesn't depend on anything if it was lnd and it depended on bitcoin you'd essentially have the depends on uh, clause here um, so that's kind of how that works um, and I'm not going to go a deep dive into Terraform because I barely know how it works. I just know these YAML files and they get smushed together and you can deploy stuff. Um, I'm still new to a lot of this, uh, but let, let's, uh, let's dig into what is going on here. Um, so you see this namespace thing, right? Um, so typically when you deploy an application, you want to break it up into different namespaces based on how things are related. So you can see we have this Bitcoin namespace here. Obviously, that's where we're throwing L&D stuff. We've got uh, Loop out there, Lightning Labs Loop for liquidity management, doing submarine swaps uh, when you have to swap between on-chain and off-chain. Um, we've got Ride the Lightning there. If you've used that on like your Umbral node, that helps you, again, manage liquidity and do transactions. Um, so the next namespace we have is this Galoi. Um, this is where all of our custom code lives. Um, we've got our API, so this is where all the code lives with the GraphQL API. We've got this Kratos thing. This is like our authentication and identity management system. I'm not going to go super deep into that. Um, we've got Mongo database is where we store a lot of our stuff. Um, we've got Postgres. We've got this Galois price thing. So we actually do price aggregation feed. Um, so we, we, we use several different exchanges to aggregate a price of Bitcoin. Um, so that's what this service does. I mean, you kind of see when, once you start getting into these larger applications, I'm sure you've heard the buzzword microservices before. Um, if you use Kubernetes, it, it really allows you to build like these microservices. You might have 10 services, and then they might communicate via gRPC. Um, and really, you can start breaking different independent components apart. Like we could have stuck that price feed within our Galoi API, but you know, a lot of times we get a bad feed from where we're getting it. Maybe Kraken goes down, or they become just giving us a bad feed, and we want to start using a different exchange. It's independent of the API. We wouldn't have, we wouldn't have to take the API down if we wanted to update an exchange that we're pro uh, pulling a price feed from. Um, so it's it's pretty smart to break all these namespaces up. Um, same thing, you can see we've got this ingress stuff. This is where all the networking stuff happens down here. Um, and then the Kafka and all that stuff. So that's kind of our stack in a nutshell. So let's actually start seeing how you would actually hit our API. So at this point, everything is within this Kubernetes environment. How, how do I go to a, a, a URL and hit, hit the GraphQL API? Um, let's go over doing that um, now in a second here. Oh, it just deployed, cool. 
Um, so you can see we just literally deployed all that stuff, 64 things with like a click of a button and a bunch of YAML and Terraform files. Um, I would go into some of the details in those, but it's not super interesting. It's just like another language you got to learn, like you learned JavaScript, you got into Docker, you had to learn how, a, how to do a Docker file, then you, you advanced into Docker Compose, you had to learn YAML file. It's just an evolution of that. Once you start deploying out to these clouds, you just have to learn a slightly different way to configure, um, configure that. Um, so let's start playing with this stuff. Uh, what's the first thing we should do? Should we go to the Bitcoin node and mine some blocks? Yeah, let's do that. Um, well, this is just on one machine, so it's one node. Yeah, it's, it's, so this would be equivalent to like the cheap model, like you're running one node. It's not highly available. If I unplug the button, everything goes down. Um, typically, if you run it in a cloud, you're going to have a cluster, right? You're going to have three computers, probably minimum. So if one computer goes down, one VM goes down, you've got your other two. Um, so right now, it's not a high available mode because I'm running it psh, on this little computer next to me. Why am I running on this computer? Oh, because it's cool. Like, we're Bitcoiners, man. We can run our own bank in your closet. Yeah, like, like we run our own Raspberry Pis in our closet. Uh, we can run our own banks in our closet if you wanted to. Yeah. Well, I'm remoted in just because I like to do it that way because I can switch between. But, uh, but yeah. Anyways, yeah, let's start playing around. Uh, so this K9's tool is cool because it makes it very easy to remote into these machines. Um, so typically, you'd have to like SHH a new machine or do like Docker exec and all that crazy stuff. But with this K9 tool, I can basically just hit S for shell. So let's go to our Bitcoin node and just hit S. And I'm in Bitcoin. And boom, I'm in a shell for Bitcoin. Um, so you can kind of see our data structure. Um, so the first thing you do when you get into a Bitcoin node, if you've ever ran one yourself, is you got to create a wallet. Um, so let's create a wallet. I've got a cheat sheet for this because I always forget the commands. They used to automatically create a default wallet for you in Bitcoin D, but they don't do that anymore. I don't know why. You've ran into this before, right? When you, when you go into Bitcoin D, they don't create a wallet for you anymore? Yeah, it's deprecated. All right, so I've got a command for that. Um, so yeah, let's create a wallet called Testnet with the Bitcoin CLI. And in a real environment, you can pre-configure all this stuff. I just wanted to demonstrate how you can play around with a lot of these things that are running in Kubernetes, um, the same way you would do if it's running on your own machine. Um, so, so let's create a test wallet. Cool. The first thing we want to do is probably get some info about our node just to make sure it's up and running. Cool. We're up and running. I'm running in reg test, so you know, it's, I basically have to mine the blocks manually. So if you ever ran a reg test node, you might do a transaction like, why the hell is it not mining? Like the first time I did it. And a lot of people run Polar, where you have to click the mine button. So yeah, it doesn't automatically mine, because we're not hooked up to a network in RegTest. We're, we're just mining on our own machine. Um, so the first thing we, you typically do in Bitcoin D is you have to mine a block. Um, so I'm going to use this little helper here to mine a block. Um, so essentially what I did is I used the Bitcoin CLI to mine seven blocks. Um, and these are the outputs of that. Um, so I just mined seven blocks. Cool. Uh, who got that money? Um, so it was this node. 
So if you want to, the money to start going into your own wallet, you might want to use a tool like Ride the Lightning to get better visibility into what your node's doing. Um, so we installed that. So let's actually exit out of here and let's get some better visualizations on what the heck's going on in our Bitcoin network. Um, so we've got down here, Ride the Lightning. Cool. How do we get, how do we get into this Ride the Lightning node? Um, so typically on your Umbral node, you just click a, a user interface and boom, you're in, you're in your... Uh, you're in your right, the lightning. Um, within here, it's not as easy. We actually have to uh, port forward so we can access it on our host machine. Um, so there's an uh, easy button. If I hit Shift F, I can actually do the port forward right here. Um, so we're going to port forward on, uh, we're not going to use 3000 because I'm using that for something else. I'm going to change the, point, uh, the port to 3005. And if I hit OK, We've got the port forward activated. So now I go to my host machine and I can actually open up localhost uh, 3000 and we'll see Ride the Lightning. Um, so let's go here and magic happens. Yay, we're on Ride the Lightning. Um, so now what do we need? Oh crap, I don't know what the password is because all this stuff was auto-generated by those config files. How do I get that? Yeah. Um, Ride the Lightning is a visual visual tool for helping you manage your Bitcoin and Lightning node. Um, so it'll show you your wallets. It'll allow you to do a send and receive. You can do UTXO consolidations. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll demo in a second here. Um, so now we're in the problem of how do we get a password to get into Ride the Lightning. If you're familiar with Umbral, you usually just go to a screen and it tells you the password. Um, let me show you how you do that in this environment. Um, so let's go back to our... Kubernetes cluster. Um, and I'm going to run another tool called Portainer, which a lot of you, I know Topher is familiar with that tool. He manages his, his own Docker um, environment with that. But let's install it. Um, let me go back to my notes cheat sheet. We'll introduce a new tool called Helm. Um, so if you want to install Portainer, within a Kubernetes environment, we use a tool called Helm. It's equivalent to like NPM or Node Package Manager if you're a JavaScript developer. It's just a repository of where people have these um, container images. Um, so let me run Portainer. And it's super easy, like a one-liner. Helm install Portainer with a few configurations. Um, so the next thing is I need to get a password and open it. So I've got just these cheat sheets. I'm not going to go through the details. But boom, I run one more command, magic happens, give it a second. Um, it should go through. Give it a second. Live demo, come on, there it goes, all right. So now, with those two simple commands, I've got a visual representation of my entire Kubernetes cluster. Um, so let me log in. This is like a system administrator type view, if you want to think of it that way. Um, so yeah, we're in Portainer. Let's see what the heck is running inside this cluster. This stands for Kubernetes cluster. And let's, you know, this is very similar to that K9's view. You can see my entire environment by namespace. Um, so Ride the Lightning is in the Bitcoin namespace, right? So let's go to Galois Dev Bitcoin. Um, and let's search for Ride the Lightning. Where is Ride the Lightning? Oh, here it is. Cool. Here's Ride the Lightning. Let's drill into that. All right, how the heck do I get my password? I don't know how to log in to Ride the Lightning. How do I do this? Um, so typically, you're going to want to find your secret. Um, 
And an easier view is to actually just go into config maps and secrets. So let me say, all right, I know there's a ride the lightning password stored somewhere in here. There it is, ride the lightning password. Oh, cool, there it is. Um, so yeah, equivalent to like an umbrella, you just go to a website and get your password. Um, similar thing here, it's just stored in a secret store. Kubernetes has a secret store that can store all this crap for you. Uh, I just installed it like two seconds ago. Yeah, Helm install portainer is essentially the uh, the command. Yeah. Oh wow, it switched uh, to dark mode. Cool. All right, so now you can see our node. We've got our node alias. It tells you we're running LND 15 under the covers. We're connected to Bitcoin reg test. Awesome, but we're poor. We have no money. Shit. Let's get some money. Let's get some money. So so. All right, let's mine some blocks, and then we'll give the miner reward to this guy. Um, so let's go to our on-chain wallet here. Um, what do we want? We want Taproot address, or we want a BEC32 Topher? What do we want? Taproot? Hell yeah. Taproot all the way. All right, so we grab a Taproot address um, for reg test. All right, so let's go. Let's pretend like we're a miner now, and we're mining a block to this address. Um, so let's go back to our K9's environment and let's remote into our Bitcoin node. Um, all right, where's Bitcoin? Remote it into our Bitcoin node. We'll hit S to enter the shell. All right, let's mine a block to this address. I always forget the command to do that, so I got to go to my cheat sheet. Uh, cheat sheet, cheat sheet. I'm going to mine 111 blocks because I'm crazy because yeah, I, I want to be extremely filthy rich. Yeah, so let's mine 111 blocks. So I'm going to get, I think, a 50 Bitcoin block reward was the original, right? So I'm going to get 50 times 111 Bitcoin. I'm going to be the richest guy in the world. It depends. Is it a brand new chain? Yeah, it's a brand new chain. Maybe and, uh, 50. Is it 50? It takes 100 blocks to accrue. Okay, so we're going to do 111 blocks. Yeah, you'll get 11. All right, so let's get it. All right, so... We just mined 111 blocks. Let's go back to Ride the Lightning and see if we're filthy rich. Um, it might be pending in the UTXOs. Might have to hit refresh. There we go. Oh, we got 12 UTXOs. Hell yeah, we're rich. All right, so we've got a $60 billion Satoshi. What is it in Bitcoin? We got 600 Bitcoin. We're, we're a whale. This is, this is how Satoshi felt in 2010 or 11, probably. All right, cool. That was in the make deploy. It deployed the YAML and Terraform files for LND, and it did that after Bitcoin was up. Yeah, so that was all within this repository. That stuff's already configured for you. Yeah, so I can go into our Lightning node if you want to see that. Um, it's a little bit hard to demo a Lightning in reg test when we do this just because I'm the only one in the network. I don't have any friends to open a channel with. So I'm going to do probably more on-chain transactions. But I can show you what our Lightning node looks like. If I exit out of our Bitcoin node, um, let me get out of here, make this bigger. So we do have the Lightning node here. LND is what we're running. Um, so if I shell into that, let me go into just clear net so I can run like the LNCLI. I'm on the reg test network. 
Um, I don't know, git info, is that the command? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's, there's our lightning wallet. It was essentially automatically created as part of our deployment scripts. Um, it created all that for us. Um, so yeah, that's fun. Oh yeah, let's, let's put some money into this wallet. Um, what is the command? LNCLI uh, new address maybe? New, new address. So let's get a new Bitcoin address. Uh, it's probably going to ask me, do you want to taproot? Yeah, I want to pay to taproot because that's what all the cool kids are using. Boom. So I've got a Bitcoin address. All right, let's mine a block to our LND node. Let's make ourselves filthy rich. Um, let me just open a new instance of this K9. So I've got to switch back and forth. Let's go to K9s. All right, let's go to our Bitcoin node and mine a block and give it to our Lightning wallet. Um, let's shell into that. Bitcoin D. What is the command? I'm going to memorize it this time. Bit, Bitcoin CLI generate to address? Yeah, generate to address. We have to do more than 100. 112. We're going to be rich. All right, so boom. All right, now let's go back to our Lightning node. And let's see, uh, what is it, wallet balance? Is that the command? Boom, we're rich. So I, I should have showed that before, because before it was zero, we were poor, now we're rich. All right, cool. So this is like all the backend magic stuff. Yeah. So you're talking about within uh, Ride the Lightning? Yeah, I'm trying to think, which, is this the same wallet? Yeah, so I believe, I think this is the same wallet. I believe, I'd have to look at the config. I think this Ride the Lightning is connected to our LND1. Yeah, LND, does it show you like the RPC port? Oh, here, node config. We're connected to, I don't know, something. Yeah, but th this is the same node. The Ride the Lightning is just a, a web interface on top of our Lightning node that we just, did the CLI stuff with. Um, so, oh, yeah, so uh, Lightning nodes have like, they have, they have an on-chain portion and then they have the portion with the Lightning channel. And so you need, you need to put funds in your Lightning node before you can put them in a channel. So you typically LND or Core Lightning, they'll have their own wallet that will manage on so we created an address in the Lightning Wallet so that the Lightning Wallet knows to subtract that address for any payment. Yeah. And I'm just doing on-chain Bitcoin stuff because it's hard in this local environment to open channels up. I'd have to, there's, we could script that out, but it's just not set up yet. Um, so let me start showing you some, now that we have the core infrastructure, the Bitcoin node and the Lightning nodes up and running, we have a wallet. Let me show you further up the stack all the stuff that Galois layered on top of it, like our GraphQL API. I guess we'll do a a quick 101 on GraphQL. Does anyone know GraphQL here? Am I the only guy? Oh man, one guy kind of? Okay. Man, Bitcoiners don't know GraphQL. It's crazy. You're all going to know it in a, a couple minutes here and you're going to love it. 
Yeah, I mean, it's just like you're writing code. It's instead of doing like rest where everything's a git put post or delete and then you've got these long query strings and it's request response it's more like you're just still in javascript just writing code and, and like magic happens where you get data back from a server it's like a simple way to describe graphql but i'll show it to you in a second here all right so what do we have to do to get our api exposed so we can get it we kind of probably got to pour, uh, forward some ports um, so let's go back to our canines. Let's get out of our lightning node. Uh, let me actually just kill this. So I just have one instance running. All right. All right, we're back to our first state. All right, so now we're heading further up the stack. So everything's in the Deloitte dev namespace and we have this API thing here, um, except we're not gonna port forward this API because we, we put a reverse proxy in front of it. You don't want to probably just expose your API running like an express server because there's not a lot of rate limiting and like all this stuff running in production. You want to make sure you probably put a, a load balancer or a reverse proxy in front of it. Um, this is kind of like our project of, of rate limiting. So typically we rate limit two requests per second just so we don't get beat up. Like I'm sure Will's not doing this on his Nostra Relay. <laughs> Maybe he is, I don't know. But anyways, let's go to our ingress and actually let's port forward our API through that guy. Um, so it's right here. Um, typically, I could do a control F and port forward here, but I'm not going to do it that way because I want to bind to the 0.0.0, .0 the everything address, just to make it easier. Um, so let me do it a different way. Um, let me get the command for that. I always forget how to port forward. This is a similar in Docker. You can port forward stuff so you can access the data on your own machine. Uh, let's go into dev. Let me go to my cheat sheet here. Uh, we already did port tainer, ingress. All right, cool. Let's port forward our ingress. Uh, I'll go through the details of this in a second. I just want to get everything up and running. Um, so this first command here, um, I'm port forwarding to, I'm binding to all my interfaces and then my network interfaces on this box just to make it easier to deal with. I'm going to port forward my ingress controller, whatever's running on 443 in Kubernetes, which is my API, I'm going to port forward to 8080 running on my local machine here. Um, so I just did that. Same thing, I want to port forward my web wallet. We actually have a web wallet where we can actually similar to ride the light and get a visual representation of what's going on. So let me port forward also our web wallet. Um, and that runs on port 3000. Um, so let's port forward that. Ah, oh, shit. Wrong name. All right, so this is misnamed because this is a previous uh, deployment I had. So at this point, I need to find the pod named web wallet. And they usually append numbers to the end of it to make it unique. Um, so if I want to port forward web wallet, I need to search for it. Um, and this lives within a different namespace. We put this in the Galois dev add-ons just because this is stuff that not everyone runs, like the web wallet or the mobile wallet. Um, so I want to port forward this mobile wallet, web wallet. Um, so let me grab the name of this thing. And let me paste it here. And let's go. All right, so we're port forwarding 3000 and 8080. So I can go to a normal web browser and start looking at this stuff. Uh, let's go to our GraphQL API first, and I'll show you guys 
how that works. Um, all right, this is typical. You get this 401 error. It probably means there's a cookie that didn't get deleted from the last time I was playing around. Um, so you just can clear. You can see there's these cookies just left over. So this is just nuances of demonstrating locally. Is the port forwarding Yeah, 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 yeah. You'd want to use SSL, HTTPS for everything in like production. Usually, your ingress will handle that. We're just doing everything in development, so I'm just using just clear, clear text uh, HTTP. All right, so we're connected. Um, so this is a thing called Playground. Um, so if you're not familiar with GraphQL, this is a good starting point because it gives you a lot of information here. Um, so GraphQL is strongly typed. Um, so you inherently get your schema. So you can actually go to the schema tag and see what our entire schema looks like um, within our, our thing. You can see we've got an account with like a wallet. So every user has a wallet. They have limits of how much they can transact. They have a list of all the transactions they've done within their wallet. Um, Another type is wallet. You know, wallets have IDs. They have balances. How much Bitcoin is in my Bitcoin wallet? So this is kind of the nice thing about GraphQL is you get this strongly enforced schema. Um, so if you're into a typed, strongly typed language like TypeScript, it makes development a lot easier. Um, and they've got this doc sessions too. Um, so it, it shows you all the queries you can run. So to back up, in GraphQL, you can do two things. You can do queries and mutations. So if I were to equate that to what REST, what normal people are used to, like get would be a query. Post would be a mutation. Delete in the REST world would also be mutation. Patch, when you update something in REST, that's also mutation. So everything's either read or write, uh, mutation or query. Um, so that's the two main high-level things of GraphQL. That's all you need to know, really. That's GraphQL in a nutshell. It's, 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 it's JSON and queries and mutations. Super easy. Um, so you can see all of the different queries we can run. The most interesting query to run is the me query. Um, so typically in GraphQL, you get your data. So typically you start with a me query, right? OK, what can I get? I can get my phone number. I can get my user ID. I can get. All this different information. All right, screw it. Let's just start querying our, our thing. So before I can start querying the database, I have to authenticate. Um, so authenticating is a mutation. So let's type in mutation. And what do we want to do? You get IntelliSense because everything's strongly typed. So we want to log in. So I can just type, start typing login. Oh, user login. That's probably what I do. And it's kind of like JavaScript, so it's like a function. So then you can say, all right, what is the inputs I want to put into this get login? Uh, probably like a username and password, right? Something like that. A phone. Um, so right now, our system is set up to use phone numbers as login. And I'm running in this development local environment. So we mocked a bunch of phone numbers. We got a bunch of Twilio codes and phone numbers just kind of mocked in our database. So I'm going to input these fake phone numbers and this fake code. We just have like a fake 321321. Um, and we're using a phone number from our, like I was saying, this is mocked. So you can actually grab this phone number from uh, our configuration file. Um, so if I go under the dev area, there should be a 
configuration file under Galoi um, for RegTest. Um, so this is our mock. This is all of our configuration. So this is like in Docker Compose. This is kind of like your YAML file where you configure your application. Um, so our Galoi API, the thing I just showed you, our GraphQL API, runs on the network RegTest. Here's the actual Docker image. I'm using a custom image I made. And this is probably why it doesn't work on your machine. You're not using my custom, docu custom Docker image. Um, and this is the same as in Docker, right? It's the same image that you would run in Docker is what I'm running in Kubernetes. So there's no difference there. Um, and within our application, we have these things called test accounts. And this is the mocked phone number I want to steal to be able to log in. Um, so let me paste that into our login function. And so that's only half the battle. Now that's what the function I want to run. The next part of this GraphQL syntax is the data I want returned. So I want probably any errors. If there's any errors, I want the error message. I also want to get the auth token, the thing that allows me to authenticate. So let me get that. And that's essentially a typical mutation in GraphQL, is you've got the function you want to call with the inputs, and then you've got the data you want returned in the second section. I could like make it a little more separate to show it's kind of like two different pieces. But all right, drum roll. Let's see if this actually runs. And boom, I got the auth token. So basically what happened there is we have an authentication thing. We use this thing called Kratos. It's an open source identity management product. And it gave me this auth token. Um, so the next thing you want to do with this auth token is let's do a query now. Um, so I probably want to query. You don't have to write the word query. You noticed before I wrote mutation. You, you could write query if you wanted to, but no one ever. I don't ever do it. I just go right into it. Um, so I want to probably get my ID and my phone number. Queries are a lot easier because you don't have to do like the input part of the function. You're just you just what I want back. I want my phone number. I want my ID. If you hit control or control space, it gives you IntelliSense. What else do I want? I probably want my default account. What does the default account give us? And if you don't know how to use GraphQL, you just kind of go down and you hit control space like you're writing code. OK, what's in my default account? Oh, I have wallets. Cool. I want to see all my wallets. OK, within my wallets, what do I want? I probably want the balance of my wallet. That'll be cool. What else do I want? Uh, probably if I have any pending, if I have some UTXOs that haven't been, that are just uh, pending in the mempool. Yeah, let's get those. Uh, let's grab the ID of this wallet. Um, yeah, that's probably good enough. Um, so right now it's going to fail because I'm not authenticated. So let me just do a failure. Not authenticated. So this is very typical. You just go down here to this HTTP header section. I can drag that up. And this is your basic authorization bearer token that if you're a web developer, you've probably done this a million times. Um, so now that will authenticate me. And boom, I got my data. Damn, I'm poor. Let's get money. So this is where I could do a mutation where I could get a, a taproot address, kind of what we were demoing earlier within the Bitcoin and L&D stuff. But let's, let's actually use one of our applications. Um, let's use one of the Galois web wallet. 
um, to actually generate this address. Um, so if you remember earlier, we basically port forwarded 3,000. Um, so this is actually where our web wallet's running. And ignore this next part because it's a hack I had to do, and I don't want to explain it because it's too hard to explain, but um, I'm doing a reverse proxy to rewrite some cores headers to make sure I can access this. Yeah, yeah. just believe me. Topher knows what I'm talking about. All right, so now we should be able to go to our web browser and go to that localhost 4000 because I'm using that proxy to fix some weird nuances and stuff. And you should see, fancy, boom, here's our web wallet. Um, all right, cool. We've got a pleb wallet here. So let's, well, before we receive Bitcoin, we have to log in. Um, I've been having issues with this. So cross, my, cross your fingers that this, this actually works. Um, so let me grab that same phone number that we were mocking before. Um, that's not the phone number. Where'd it go? Phone number. Control C. I'm, I'm used to doing it the Mac way where it's Command C, but in Linux it's Control C. I know, no, command C. I'm a command C maxi. <laughs> All right, control C. All right, so there's that. Typically in a production environment, you'd get the little slider thing where you got to verify your identity. Um, but let me, and this is typically in our production app where you'd get a Twilio code on your phone with buzz, and then you'd get like a six-digit code. But for us, we're just mocking this, so it should be that. All right, cool. So now we want to get a received Bitcoin address because we're poor, because we got nothing. So let's hope this works. Yes. All right. So this is a lightning address. Like I said earlier, we didn't set up lightning channels. So let me grab a, one second. Let me grab a Bitcoin. Oh, damn it. It broke. All right. This is what was happening earlier. Something fell down. <laughs> it was my proxy. Why did it fall down? Oh, no. All right, let's try that one more time. I might just give up on this demo because I was having issues with cores earlier. Uh, you had a question? Yeah, so there's one guy on our team uh, who works on like the Raspi Blitz project too? OpenNOM's his name. He um, he's trying to do that. Um, our environment's a little bit beefier because we have all these telemetry and monitoring tools that I might get into later. Um, so it's a little bit harder to run like a Kubernetes native environment on like a Raspberry Pi. You you probably want more like a like an Intel NUC. And I, I even think I think the Start Nine project is getting away from. Um, Raspberry Pis. I, I believe they're actually using an Intel NUC, like a $500 computer. I mean, if you're going to run it for yourself and your 10 friends, this is overkill. This is meant to be ran for tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of users. This is meant to be like you're hosting a Lightning Wallet for a community, bank, or like a country, like the country of El Salvador. This is meant to have a team of like DevOps engineers and like, yeah, this is not meant for just a single developer dude running it at home. You can do it, um, but I mean, there's a lot, as you can see, there's a lot to it. You kinda, I'm not a DevOps guy, I just hack this stuff because I find it kinda interesting. I'm more of a full stack developer. But um, yeah, if you're gonna run this at home, you're probably just gonna use Umbrel. 
if you're going to run it for like a simple application or even maybe hundreds or thousands of users, like I believe Bitcoin company runs their backend on voltage. So that would be an option. This is like, if you're going to go, go, go big, go big, go home. So, yeah. Yeah, so that's the concept of replicas. Um, let me show you that. Um, and, that's, and that's high availability. So if we were actually running this in a real Kubernetes cluster with multiple underlying machines, you would have multiple replicas for each of your individual pods. So let me show you what that looks like for our API. We actually have two pods running our API. So if you see this right here, we have two APIs. Um, so we're load balanced, Ron Robin. So the first user that hits our application goes to this first API that ends in 65x21. The second user that hits it hits that second node because it's load balanced. And one of, if one of them goes down, your application's still up. So that's the high availability feature. And that's a configuration in the YAML file. It's just replicas. You do two replicas if you want high availability. If you have a million people hitting your app like Twitter, they probably have probably 500 or 1,000 replicas for like, I don't know, whatever their news feed or whatever their feature is that they, they built out. Oh. Yeah, you can automate it. There's, there's tools for automating uh, scaling up your pods. Um, we don't use it yet just because we don't have that much load. At that point, you're probably a company like Twitter and you probably have hundreds of engineers working on this DevOps infrastructure if you, if you want to dynamically scale up and scale down. Um, but yeah, that's, that's a super advanced thing you can do within Kubernetes. Is it's more like a Kubernetes cluster. It could be a million servers running underneath. It, it abstracts that complexity from you, right? Yeah, I have a Kubernetes cluster running on one physical machine. Yep. Yeah. Yep, exactly. Yep. So it's almost think of, you can almost map like one application to one pod, one application like ride the lightning. You can have three pods running underneath it for high availability. But yeah, a pod is like an application essentially, yeah. Exactly, yep. Yeah, I got a bunch, I got like 60 things running in here. <laughs> and you can, I can put more in here, man, if I want to install, uh, any database like Postgres, Redis, I have Redis, I have almost all the databases running. I have Postgres, I have Mongo, I have Redis. <laughs> it just depends, like out of the box, LND runs with uh, Postgres as like one of their databases if you don't use their embedded one. Um, our application, we just use MongoDB. It just depends on what the application uh, requires or what your personal preference is. 
No, GraphQL is not a database. It's just a wire protocol. Yeah, just, yeah, it fetches from our Mongo database. We, you basically write a resolver, so you hit the GraphQL endpoint for like user login, and we have a resolver, and that tells you, that's open, your code, your logic tells it what to do. Go to Postgres, go to Mongo, um, so yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's all of your logic. Just, just like a REST, like a REST API, it doesn't know what database or how to do it. You got to write all the logic to how to fetch it. There's other, there's tools like DGraph. I've been kind of looking into, like how do you do a GraphQL but without having to write all the backend code. So look into DGraph if you're kind of interested in that. It kind of turns GraphQL into a database, and they do a lot of magic behind it to make it, to make it just map to what your database would look like. But yeah. Yeah. Um, this is our this is our GraphQL API written on top of our Galois code, and our Galois backend uses LND to actually do the Lightning code. So yeah. Yeah. Let me pull that up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you can do like, for instance, all the, let's look at all the queries you can do with the Lightning Wallet. We can, essentially, we can uh, do a Lightning invoice payment status. Is it paid or not? Um, you can look at on-chain fees. Um, there's ways to create invoices from our API. Um, that would be under a mutation because you're creating something. So we've got, we can even create an, a Lightning invoice on behalf of somebody else. Um, so this, we actually have a company in El Salvador called Tianki. They actually use this feature. It's like a public API. If you want just an invoice created to go to Topher, you could hit our API and you get a LN, you know, CR invoice. Um, so yeah, that's part of our API is creating Lightning invoices. Um, no, yeah, no. Like my my development environment, I think it's up and running right now. It's just in Docker, like. Yeah, it's just a Docker Compose. If I pull up my, this is like my day-to-day -day development environment. Um, yeah, it's it's the same stuff. I'm running LND. I'm running all of our stuff. Um, I'm not running our our API because that's running locally. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. We don't have like a. Open API yet? It's kind of on the roadmap. We have like there's a hack way. We, we're going to create a hackathon environment probably. So if you want to test our API and play with it, yeah. I mean, it, it's some of our endpoints are are public. If you know how to get to like a GraphQL schema, yeah, it's not like a super official ported thing. Like we don't have good documentation on it yet, um, but you know, it, it's it's in the works. Like Strike Strike has an official API. Where you get a developer API key and you can use it. We don't have like that yet. Um, it's, it's it's on the roadmap, but uh, yeah, yeah. Because I think all the integrations would be cool. Just like, hey, you want to build an integration within this, or just use our use us to host your Lightning. Because it's it's not easy to to run your own Lightning node for thousands of users. You know that's why most people just go to Open Node and then it's just um, you, you let you outsource all of it. 
Um, this is kind of like a happy medium of like, you can run it yourself if you have enough technical ability. Um, but yeah, eventually we would like to have like a GraphQL API for Lightning, like be that service we can provide to people. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, we, we use a database behind the covers. So basically the GraphQL API hits our backend server. Um, we have, obviously we have our business logic and we write to Mongo database. And we're also, we also have a, um, a gRPC persisted connection to Lightning, uh, our LND node. So if the, if LND tells us this invoice was paid, we pick that up and then we write it to like our database. Um, yeah, so there's a whole back-end database and uh, gRPC infrastructure. Oh, yeah, yeah. So GraphQL uses HTTP post. Um, yeah. Yeah, so every GraphQL mutation or query is just an HTTP post. Um, and then... Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't have it pulled up, but like I, we have a mobile wallet, like our Bitcoin Beach wallet. I could probably pull it out of my phone, um, show you. Uh, but yeah, I didn't want to get too much into the front end stuff with this workshop, just because I know like Austin did a lot of front end stuff. I wanted to stay pretty much back end. Uh, but yeah, we've got typical mobile apps, and like I've got the Bitcoin Beach app um, installed on my phone, a very, you know, very typical wallet. I've got 20 bucks in there. You can see all my transactions are buying stuff from the refrigerator here. But yeah, we've got a, a wallet, um, you know, typical wallet. I don't know. Are we going to get it working? Let me see what was on my list. Uh, I've got... Yeah. I mean, that was kind of the idea. Like, it's... This is for the plebs, man. Whatever, whatever you guys want to go through. We've been doing this for an hour and a half. I don't know if people are bored or tired. Um, that was almost my last demo. Like, um, yeah, my, uh, I don't know. I don't know if I want to beat up the web wallet because it's kind of broken on my machine. Let's give it one more try. This mysterious proxy thing. Let's see if it works. I've actually got another way to do it. Um, let's try it the other way. It's a cheat because I have this cores proxy thing. And if I go here, oh, whoops, 3,000. I think it all fell down. Let me look at my Kubernetes cluster. Got to call the server admin. The server's down. What the hell's going on? Let me go back in. So another cool thing about this K9s tool is you can do like shift colon and you get kind of this command. So if I type in PF, I can see where all the ports are forwarding and nothing is forwarding. So something broke. Um, so then if I go back, I can type namespaces and that'll pull up. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, let's go into, yeah. Oh, yeah, you used to be an IT guy, so you're familiar with some of this stuff. So so how deep did you get into, like, VMs and hypervisors? Okay. So so Car is saying he used to be, like, an IT guy where something would break and then he'd just, he'd just restart, like, a VM or something. So let's let's actually kill this. 
So let's say something bad happens, and this right now I have a replica set to two for our API. Let's kill one of them. Let's see what happens. Um, uh, I believe Control D will delete it. Let's just straight up delete this pod, be malicious. Okay, Control D. So boom, it turns red. So we still have one API up and running, and it just restarted itself. It self-healed. If I go, if I go to our our API, let me see if I can get there quick enough. Oops, wrong button. I should be able to hit refresh, and it should all still be there. So we didn't have any downtime, right? And if I go back to our Kubernetes environment, you can see it self-healed. This new pod right here, if I scroll over, it's only 27 seconds old. This other one's been up for 40 minutes. So yeah, there's no downtime in Kubernetes. That's the beauty of it. And if I were to deploy, let's say I were to deploy a an update to our API, let's say the developer wrote a bunch of new features. Um, essentially, I would go into, let me see if I remember how to do this. I'm Again, I'm not a DevOps guy, so I'm just uh, hacking. I believe, let's say I were to add a new account to this test account, I think I can probably, let's pretend like this is a new feature within our application um, where I updated some code. Let's say I got user Z now. He's got that test user Z. So I updated the code. All right, well, let's deploy this. I've got some helper functions deploy this. Um, so if I go to our make file, I believe to deploy this code, I can hit, again, I'm not a, I'm not a Kubernetes guy. This is just, um, I thought I had a refresh command. Let's see, refresh. Yeah, so if I run make refresh, it'll basically look at the diffs in that YAML file and be like, oh, you updated code. You should redeploy your API backend. And if I get to Kubernetes real quick, you should see it doing my upgrade. Um, so right now it's looking at the diffs. Oh, the guy updated his code. Oh, we need to update um, these two API services. Uh, and you can see a bunch of stuff turning red. And no downtime. Again, if people are using our application, I just updated our code, and it's automatically orchestrating everything to deploy the code with no downtime. Um, so you see all that fancy stuff, boom, up and down, up and down, boom, it just patched one of the API nodes, it's up and running, all right, now it's gonna update the code for the second one, um, the second guy here, and all of the dependencies. Um, you can see all these other pods depended on that change. And boom, no downtime, we just updated our application. Well, almost. 41 seconds up, 12 seconds. He's not quite up yet. He's. Yeah, typically, typically the downtime that does happen is when you just have a bug in your code. For instance, like if I deployed a bug, it would, and I had two pods running with the API, the bug will only be in one, so it'll just it'll just be down, and it'll never progress to the next one. So even if you even if you deploy a bug in your code, it'll just take one of the pods down, and it won't upgrade the second one. It'll just be like I'm not going to upgrade because you're you're not healthy. Um, 
Yeah, so, so it's, it's kind of hard to introduce a bug into like a Kubernetes environment if you do it right. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, at that point, it's just a, a git revert. Like, we've, I've introduced bugs, but we have staging environment. It's very hard to get a bug into production because we go through like multiple environments and gate checks. And yeah, we have a whole CI you know, methodology of how we deploy code, which you know, it's a lot more advanced than check your code into GitHub and then publish a Vercel app. You know, it's, it's, it's a little more involved when you're dealing with these production apps. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's all like the concept of infrastructure as code. Like once your application gets mature, uh, mature enough, you're probably going to want to make sure you have your infrastructure written in a YAML file in case of a disaster, right? Maybe Google Cloud goes down and your server is gone. Well, shit, we got to restore everything from backup. Obviously, we have offsite backups of the databases and the important stuff, um, but your code is important too. So with a couple clicks of a button, you can redeploy the whole environment. Um, kind of like what I demoed here is, you know, from scratch, it's, you got 64 things up and running. If you had to get 64 things up and running manually, I don't know how many days or weeks it would take. Like I used to work at a, like an old company where we did a disaster recovery drill and we had to recover SAP, our entire SAP system, which is like probably thousands of different things and components and mainframes. It took us a whole week just to get that environment back up and running, like a full team of like 10 people that's just to get the virtual machine environment back up. I used to kind of be a system administrator back in the day. Um, but yeah, nowadays, like, it's a, pretty much a non-event. Like, if, if something happens, a new kit, Google Cloud's main data center, like, to get back up and running with this type of architecture, you're probably within an hour or two with one or two people, probably. So, so yeah. Yeah. Yep. That that was just for like the upgrade. So it is it is always so our node how we have it now is we have one master node. So LND one is our master, but if we had to patch it to update to the newest version of LND, we would switch over to LND two. Um, so it's not it's not like a round robin between the two nodes. We, we could do that, it's just we don't have enough load on our servers yet to have to do that, which keep it simple for now, just hit one server and take it down for upgrades, so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not the DevOps guy. I'm just a front end, front end, back end, full stack developer. I don't know exactly how, but we we keep offsite backups of like all of our databases and stuff too. And um, so I mean, if it if it, something just blew up at a point point in time, we would just recover it from our our database backup. Um, yeah, I believe there's a way to, in LND to, to restore from database backup. It's obviously, the channels backup and all that stuff. But 
yeah, I think we, we, there used to be the concept of snapshots back in the day when I was like a virtual machine guy. I don't know if Kubernetes has that, like a snapshot. Uh, but yeah, I'm not 100% sure. This, this isn't my day job doing this stuff. I just wanted to get it out there. <laughs> I think it's broken. I think I'm going to give up. What's that? We're not, it's kind of experimental what we're going to use it for. Um, but just a general queue to queue up transactions and stuff, just have a better way to do it. Right now, we're pretty atomic, like either it happens or not. But if we want to start queuing up data, like maybe have 10 things sitting in a queue. Um, yeah, I'm not 100% sure what we're going to use Kafka for, but. Yeah, it's kind of every, it's a, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can dispatch events and listen to events and listen to topics like a pub sub queue type architecture. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, it's a good architecture, but most of our backend code like isn't quite there yet. Um, I know a lot on front end side, like I'm a big Redux guy where everything's like a kind of a pub sub architecture of dispatching stuff and then listening to state changes. Or you don't really have to listen because the selector just pulls in those state changes. But um, yeah, similar architecture to that. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, I mean, the GraphQL API, I think was the extent to where I wanted to get to. But yeah, we do, like, like again, we have that web wall. It's not up and running on here. Just there, there's bugs with cross-origin resource sharing and stuff. When you port forward stuff on local local host, you run into just uh, issues with cores. Um, if you've been a front-end dev, I'm sure you've been there before. But uh, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so everyone speaks the Kubernetes protocol, but the difference between the systems is maybe you want to use like a cloud native service, like a secret store. I think it's called Key Vault in Azure. Um, and that's where Terraform comes in handy. You can use Terraform to say, I want to use a secret store, but then you can custom configure it, say, but I want to use Azure secret store. Yeah, and it abstracts it. Maybe you're you want to use Google Cloud secret um, storage provider. So yeah, that Terraform would be the tool to kind of abstract away the the cloud dependencies, I guess, if you're trying to be multi-cloud or cloud agnostic, um, essentially. So yeah, I think we're uh, what we, we've been going for almost two hours now. I guess I guess we can do one last question. Is there any one last question? Okay. Oh man, we got two. All right, All right let's go.
Yeah, I mean, the redundancy is just, it's just built into Kubernetes. You don't have to, that's the whole point, is you don't have to think about it. Yeah, you just. Yeah, I mean, it just depends on how many users you have. Like LND scales pretty well up to, you know, tens of thousands of users probably, but, you know, eventually like Cash App doesn't use LND for a reason. Um, they had to write their own software, LDK, to be able to basically, you know, horizontally scale. Just, just how you're storing data, how you're doing like event-driven architecture, just basically the, arc, the upfront architectural decisions the developer made when building the app um, determines how you can host it, right? Um, so we purposely, when we built the Galoi part of the stack, not like the Lightning part of the stack, which we don't control that code, we you know, purposely made decisions on how we're gonna host this on Kubernetes uh, specifically. Um, and we're getting more into like an event-driven architecture which will allow you to scale out horizontally between you know, tens or hundreds of different um, nodes. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know if that answers your question, but again, I'm not a server DevOps guy. I'm just, I'm just showing something because I, I thought there was kind of a need and uh, skills gap within some of the Bitcoin people, but well, yeah, still lots to learn, still lots to do. So, all right, we'll call it good. Thanks, guys. <laughs>